Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome to this new episode of the ACE Podcasts. My name is Van Tank Preacham, the Editor-in-Chief of Endocrine Practice, and I have the pleasure of hosting today's podcast, which will be focused on fatty liver disease, or also known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. We're very fortunate today to have Dr. Scott Isaacs, who's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University, and he's one of the co-chairs of the new ACE guidelines that were just published in the May issue of Endocrine Practice. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're really excited about these guidelines, and it uh, made a big splash at the ACE annual meeting this past month. Could you tell us a little bit about why endocrinologists should be concerned about fatty liver disease? Yeah, so the objective of the guidelines was to provide evidence-based recommendations for the diagnosis and management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the reason that we wanted to direct these guidelines to endocrinologists and primary care clinicians is because we're the ones that are seeing the patients every day that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is extremely common and it's underdiagnosed. And it's very common in patients with endocrine disease, especially type 2 diabetes, features of the metabolic syndrome and obesity. So we wanted to bring awareness and also provide some context, some history and background, and then also develop some strategies for diagnosis and management. I think that answers partly my next question. Endocrinologists, like you said, are probably seeing these patients in their practices. How common would you say it is? I mean, how many people in the United States have it? Or put another way, what percentage of an endocrinologist practice might have people with fatty liver disease? Well, when we talk about being common, this is a worldwide epidemic. And globally, the incidence is about 25% of the U.S. population has fatty liver disease. But in the U.S., it seems to be a little bit more common. And there was a recent study published last year by Harrison that showed that 38% of the U.S. population has NAFLD and 14% of the population have NASH non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and 6% of the U.S. population has significant liver fibrosis. And this is more common in patients with type 2 diabetes and obesity, and also more common in the Hispanic population. But the rates in patients with diabetes are approximately triple the rates of the general population. So in patients with diabetes, we may see as high as 90% have fatty liver disease, and the rates of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH are similarly about triple the rates of the general population. One of the confusing parts of the guideline or just fatty liver disease in general is sort of the acronyms used. So NASH, NAFLD, could you help the audience understand what is the difference in terminology? What is NASH? What's NAFLD? 
Yes, and it can be a bit confusing, and especially with all these letters. NAFLD is the overarching term to describe all of the conditions under the spectrum of NAFLD. So it's, it's a hypernym. And so you would start with a simple steatosis, which is also called NAFL or non-alcoholic fatty liver. And this is a non-progressive condition, but then you can have more progressive steatohepatitis or NASH, which is characterized by inflammation and necrosis of hepatocytes uh, that appear, uh, they call it ballooning. And then that can progress to fibrotic NASH. And then you can also have NASH cirrhosis. So that's the spectrum starting with a non-progressive simple steatosis progressing through NASH and fibrotic NASH to the end stage of cirrhosis. We're also joined by Dr. Ken Kusi, who's a division director at the University of Florida, and who was also co-chair of the guidelines. Uh, Dr. Kusi, thank you so much for joining. I was wondering if you could also tell us why these guidelines are so important for endocrinologists and primary care physicians. We were talking previously about how prevalent NASH, NAFLD is in the U.S. population, probably the world too, but what is your take? Why are these so important for primary care doctors and endocrinologists? Well, thank you, Vin, for the question. We worked very hard with Scott and a group of prestigious endocrinologists at the initiative of ACE and also with the American Associated Study of Liver Disease with Dr. Yunusi and Renilla, because this is a big void in the management of our patients. With 70% of people with type 2 diabetes having fatty liver and at least 40% having the inflammatory component that leads to scarring, uh, which is fibrosis and cirrhosis. We are letting a lot of our patients with diabetes or people with obesity and diabetes advance to cirrhosis. And that can be preventable with very simple things, if you want to put it, lifestyle modification by any means, some diabetes medications that should be prioritized if you have fibrosis and or steatopatitis. So if we are going to be screening for nephropathy and uh, measuring albumin in the urine, or we recommend an eye exam, I love the initiative of ACE to be bold and start working on preventing cirrhosis. So this has been an incredible opportunity. And with the leadership of Scott, I mean, we, we pulled it off. And I think it's a really, really a new page in our management of people with risk factors for NASH. Mm. Why is it taking so long, Dr. Isaacs? Because I, I mean, when I read the guidelines, like, wow, this is really going to be impactful. Why do you think it took so long to get these guidelines in general to come out? Well, that's a great question. I think we would have liked to have had guidelines sooner. And of course, the development process for these guidelines took about two and a half years. And we had the plans for it even longer. But Really, over the last few years, NAFLD has become more and more recognized as an important condition among endocrinologists and primary care physicians. So, you know, it it could have been earlier, but it's not too late. And we're really proud that this is the first ever guidelines for endocrinology and primary care physicians for NAFLD. And that's great. I mean, it's better later than never. I mean, when you read the document, you just realize, oh my goodness, this is such an important 
condition that we sort of overlooked over the past few years. And I'm just happy that we finally have a guideline out like that. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Uh, Dr. Kusi, I mean, you mentioned screening and what struck me the most was the emphasis on screening. And the one screening test that jumps out is the FIB4. And I know that many intercrowns may not know about this. Could you just talk about FIB4 and other non-invasive screening tests that we can use as tools to pick up NAFLD and NASH? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, I mean, we would love to have a blood test that would be as good as the A1C to diagnose diabetes, you know, even the A1C has some caveats. So we needed to pick something that would be practical, inexpensive, because we don't have the long-term data and using more expensive tests. So the FIT4 builds upon very simple things, age, plasma amino transferases, and platelets. And the nice thing is that in our electronic medical records, you can build this formula or get it from the website, any website, but you can build it in your AEMR as we have at the University of Florida and put it in your notes. And the test is not extremely sensitive, but it is quite specific that if the number is in the intermediate or high, your chances of already having significant fibrosis and a higher risk of developing cirrhosis is there. So what you do first and most important, what the guidance wanted us is to begin thinking about the problem. Once you think about the problem, it'll take you five to 10 seconds to just estimate that you, like in our Epic, we also, we can, you can type dot fib four and you get the number right there. We also have a calculator. So it just take a few seconds. Now it doesn't mean that people who have a normal value below this 1.3 are out of trouble, but at least at this starting point, uh, in this first version, we want to use something cheap and simple. So I think that we are going to catch the majority of people who deserve further attention and a second test, which is elastography. And now last year, there's another commercial test called ELF. But at, at least if you think that this person has a greater risk, now this person is on a path that eventually will be fully diagnosed by either us or more likely the hepatologists working in these teams. So does that mean every patient with diabetes we're seeing, we should get a FIB4 in? Okay, so that's a great question. So I would say yes, and I'm going to lobby other societies which have been participating in multidisciplinary efforts like last year, an initiative of the American Gastroenterological Association put together primary care doctors, endocrinologists, ACE through Sandy Weber, as you know, and ADA to come up with a similar pathway. And I think if you look at all the studies out there, while obesity is a risk factor, the one that stands out is type two diabetes. So why not spend 10 seconds to know if your person with type two diabetes is at risk of cirrhosis, when we already know that one out of five have a degree of fibrosis that puts them at risk. So if you had a disease where 20% of the people are on a path to getting end organ damage, I think that you would like to screen. And that's why I think we should advocate for this screening in all people with type 2 diabetes. Okay. And just another follow-up question. You mentioned the second test with elastography. Can you, I mean, many of us may not know much about this test. Can you describe the test and what we would do with the results? 
Very good. Thank you, Vin. So we did these guidelines based on evidence-based medicine. We tried to make them as evidence-based as we could based on the information we have today. And many, many studies have shown that elastography measured by a device called FibroScan, which the majority of the hepatologists in the United States and the rest of the world have, and it's a relatively not a very expensive test, that could really be the second test that can tell you if the person has advanced fibrosis or not. It's a test that's sort of like an ultrasound, takes about five to 10 minutes. Your hepatologists do it together with the vital signs and the doctors immediately can start the conversation with the patient. So this is something that's been worldwide validated. It's not a perfect test. It's less precise Mm -hmm. if you don't have a lot of fibrosis and it measures stiffness. So the more fibrosis, the stiffer the liver, the more accurate. There are a bunch of commercial tests. The one, again, that has been most widely validated outside the United States is the ELF test. It's a commercial test that measures some specific biomarkers that are related to the process of fibrosis. And again, many studies done outside of the United States because that this has just been approved in mid-2021 in the United States. So those two te- other tests are going to add, and there are other good tests like Pro-C3, others that are being tested like NIS4 or combining liver enzymes with elastography called FAST. There are others. We just put those that had the strongest unquestionable validation. And by the way, FIB4 is also now being correlated with future cirrhosis in a number of studies that were published in the last two years. So this is unquestionable evidence and it builds the kind of data we need to do broader recommendations as we did in the, in the guidelines with Scott and the team. Thank you so much. I think that helps uh, our audience understand the screening and the follow-up test. I want to go back to Dr. Isaac. So let's say you have a patient that has type 2 diabetes, elevated FIB4, you did the elastography, you have early signs of fibrosis. Scott, help us. What do we do now? We're endocrinologists. This is not in our training. What is our next step in someone who may have early fibrosis? What do we do? Well, that's a great question because that is going to be a percentage of patients, as Dr. Kuzi mentioned, about 20% of patients with uh, type 2 diabetes. And so when when we do the screening with the FIP4, you can have values that are indeterminate, kind of in that middle zone or in that high risk. And those are the patients that are, you know, at higher risk for advanced fibrosis or clinically significant liver fibrosis. So these are the patients that need to have a team approach. So these are patients that should be referred to a liver specialist, to a hepatologist or a gastroenterologist. And this is where they would consider possibly a liver biopsy and they'd focus on fibrosis and cirrhosis management. And they might screen for hepatocellular carcinoma and esophageal varices. However, these patients remain at very high risk for cardiovascular disease. And so it's the role of the endocrinology team or the primary care team to lower that risk. And that includes optimizing the management of diabetes and hypertension and lipids and and weight management. And we're using lifestyle, intensive lifestyle, uh, diets, 
exercise, medications, and even bariatric surgery. So, it, you know, for these patients with advanced liver disease, it, it really does take this team approach trying to prevent both cirrhosis, liver cancer, and then also the cardiometabolic disease. Mm-hmm. And are there certain drugs that we could use in lower risk patients, perhaps that are not yet as fibrotic as the higher risk patients, Scott, maybe? Are there certain drugs that we could prescribe as endocrinologists or is it by the time they get fibrosis, it's really in the hepatologist's hands? Well, believe it or not, the hepatologists don't really like to prescribe the medications that are currently effective, which are primarily going to be diabetes medications and weight loss medications. And so they do rely on us for prescribing these medications, although there are no medications at this time that are officially approved by the FDA for the treatment of fatty liver disease or advanced fibrosis. There is very good data on several classes of drugs, primarily the GLP-1 receptor agonists and pioglitazone. Also, there is some data with the SGLT2 inhibitors, although not as much data, and there's not as much histologic data, but these would be the preferred medications for patients with diabetes who also have fatty liver disease. And then the obesity medications can also be used. So these would be, you know, the, the, the benefit is through weight loss, but anything that helps with weight loss is going to help with reversing steatosis And the greater amounts of weight loss, having weight loss of at least 10% can help with reversing some of the fibrosis as well. Those are all great points, Scott. And and if you let me then, I I would like to highlight one important aspect is that we're not trying to find to treat fat in the liver. What we're trying to treat is the inflammation, but unfortunately we don't have very good tests for inflammation, but at least we can non-invasively treat those that have scarring. And that's why we, we don't recommend ultrasonography, but we want to find those that have fibrosis with the FIB4 and with mm-hmm. the elastography test of Fibroscan and the ELF. So we want to treat the fibrosis, prevent that from going advancing. Okay. And you ask then why now? Well, Data in the last two years showed that the both elastography and FIB4 predict future events. And the other thing that happened is there were very important publications showing that you can treat the inflammation, what we call the steatopatitis, which stops the progression of disease. So as Scott mentioned, GLP-1 receptor agonist, an important paper in the New England on semaglutide. Then in the United States, also semaglutide was approved for obesity. Recently, we got tercepatide approved for uh, the treatment of type 2 diabetes, and they have obesity and NASH trials ongoing. And pioglitazone is a dirt cheap approach that costs less than $5 a month. There are now five studies in people with or without diabetes. So summarizing the message is, if you have a person with diabetes with NASH, choose a medication that has proven to work in NASH too, like pioglitazone or a GLP-1 like with the best Mm -hmm. evidence for semaglutide. And if you have obesity in NASH, well, you have anti-obesity indications for GLP-1 and lidaglutide and with semaglutide. And, you know, you may want to consider eventually you can try pioglitazone, but again, doesn't have an indication for people without diabetes, Mm -hmm. but do something. And this is what then happens. 
So endocrinologists have not been aware until now about NASH. The hepatologists send the patient with NASH, so we treat it with a diabetes medication, but we're not aware of it. So patients fall into this limbo between two specialties and the majority mm -hmm. don't get treated. I hope that with this, we are turning the page to a new, more proactive approach for our people with NASH and fibrosis. Thank you very much. Ken, just a follow-up to that. So it sounds like what you're saying is you have a person with uh, NASH and what the endocrinologist really should be monitoring is all things we're comfortable with already, making sure the diabetes is well-controlled, the blood pressure is well-controlled. We didn't talk about lipids, but I'm assuming controlling that. There isn't any other marker, as far as I hear, that is going to show that the fibrosis or the fat is going away. Is that correct? Or, or well, is to be honest, that's a great point. So liver enzymes are going to go down. And particularly, this is another tip. ALT is more a marker of inflammation and maybe steatosis or steatoinflammation. The AST is a better marker of fibrosis. And this is another thing that's important. A value above 30 is abnormal, not 40. So if you have somebody with an AST of 36 or 38, that person likely has fibrosis. You got to do something. So if you don't want to calculate the FIB4, begin worrying when your people have an AST or ALT above 30. And if you see that with platelets hitting 150,000, you got somebody who is in trouble. Now, what we're just trying to say here is that instead of putting a person with diabetes with liver enzymes in the 35s and above on sulfonylurea, on a DPP-4 or insulin medication that don't have any effect on NASH, choose a medication that can treat the liver and also reduce cardiometabolic risk like GLP-1 receptor agonists and also as bioglitazone has shown. Again, weight loss with GLP-1s improve some of the lipid profile, bioglitazone increases HDL, lowers triglycerides. So what you're saying is use a dual purpose. You get with these agents, three benefits. NASH benefit, what they've shown is to reverse and halt steatopatitis in 50% or more of the patients. And they have a modest effect on fibrosis, but at least it will halt the progression of disease. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we cannot, so you have three benefits, I said, NASH, diabetes, and cardiometabolic improvement. So that's so important because as Scott so clearly said, if you have NASH, you have increased cardiometabolic risk. So it is now the time to prevent cirrhosis. And again, between five to 8% of people with type two diabetes have pre-cirrhosis or cirrhosis. We're just not finding them. Mm -hmm. And again, with the test that we have today, we should be able to find at least 90% of these individuals in our clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, thank you very much. That's very helpful, Dr. Kusi, how you framed that for us and the audience. In the final few minutes, I want to ask both of you, maybe you could tell us what is your final, most important take-home message from the guidelines. And I'll start with you, Scott. What do you want the audience to know from these guidelines? And obviously they should read it in the May issue of Endocrine Practice, but what would you say is the most important thing for you that the audience should take away? I think the take-home message is that fatty liver disease is something that we are all seeing every day. 
And we really need to become more aware of it and be able to easily perform the screening, the FIP4 testing in our high-risk patients because the symptoms of fatty liver disease can be non-existent or vague, like just fatigue. The vast majority of patients have normal liver enzymes. So even if they have normal liver enzymes, need to still do that FIB4 test and then to do the additional non-invasive testing to assess the risk of fibrosis. Because as Dr. Cousy said, it's really not the fat that we're concerned about, but it's the inflammation and the fibrosis. And that's what increases that risk for our cirrhosis and liver cancer. So if we can just be aware that these patients we're seeing every day and try to pick up on some of them, I think we can do a lot of good. That's great. Dr. Cousy, your final thoughts? Think Nash, okay? So you have somebody with diabetes. Could this person be at risk? And again, that's the key because that triggers everything else that we put in those 20 pages and 400 references. Fit for easy equation. And again, if you get into this routine in the same way that we're doing to measure microbiomin in our patients, I am sure that in the first two weeks, you're going to find two or three patients in your clinic that have cirrhosis or pre-cirrhosis. They're there. They usually can be middle-aged individuals. 40 to 60 would be the window. And there are things you can do today. We, Of course, lifestyle. But the easiest thing is to talk with your patients and talk with your dietitians to prevent this. From a treatment, a couple of tips. A, pioglitazone is like the metformin for NASH. And in the past 20 years, we learned to use it a lot better. We don't give it to somebody with heart failure or long-standing history of cardiovascular disease because of risk of heart failure. We start low. We start at 15 milligrams. I mean, that typically is not associated with much weight gain. And then you just bump it up to 30 if needed. And we just don't use the max dose very often, although you could. Again, GLP-1 receptor agonist would be the ideal drugs to promote weight loss and combine it with and reduce cardiovascular risk. The only problem are, is the cost, but there are things you can do today. And be honest, you would be doing them anyway to treat their diabetes or anyway if they had obesity and you wanted to lose weight with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. I have to tell you, many new drugs are under development but think NASH and choose your drugs smartly and work a little bit harder. I found in the terms when your patients have uh, NASH and their liver's at risk, that really strikes a chord in our patients. And I found that a lot of people take lifestyle changes more seriously when they are diagnosed with NASH and fibrosis. So use it as a tool to motivate your patients, educate them, and I think we are at, at the beginning of a new, more sophisticated management of our patients with obesity or type 2 diabetes. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for coming on the podcast. And thank you so much for co-chairing this very important guideline. I really think it's going to make huge impact for all of our patients. This is something that we've needed for a long time. And I'm glad we've been able to give the tools to our endocrine community on how to deal with NASH, NAFLD. And I think, like you said, Dr. Kuz, just just the start. I think there's a lot more to come and I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you both. And we're very appreciative for uh, you joining us today. Thank you, Vin. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.